From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. The sentencing of Ramsey Awad to life without parole came at a tense moment in racialised policing. There are now people asking if the evidence used to convict was fair and if the politics around so-called Middle Eastern crime played a role. This is part two of a two-part episode. Reporting is by Mahmoud Fazal. Mahmoud, we're talking about a a crime war in Western Sydney in the early 2000s and the arrest of key figures from the Darwish family. There was enormous pressure on police to get convictions at this time. Can you tell me about the case that they were building? It officially started with a flight to Beirut in early 2006 where police interviewed Khalid Talib. Talib's nickname was Crazy. He was well known in the western suburbs of Sydney as a violent kind of enforcer. He was Eddie Darwish's right-hand man within the criminal syndicate. Mahmoud Fazal wrote about this case for the monthly magazine. He's short and stocky with a heavy stutter and aggressive physical tics. Police described him as unstable and crazy. Right. And what did Talib tell police in these interviews that he did with them? Well, he detailed his own involvement in the Darwish syndicate to two detectives. And police have told us off the record that they were in negotiations with Talib for a few years prior to the actual official statement was signed. He detailed a catalogue of crimes dating back to the mid-90s. In the early part of 2001, uh, there was a shooting. One of the, the Razak family was ambushed in his house. People just burst into his house uh, in southwestern suburbs, uh, produced guns and shot Bilal Razak as he lay on his bed. Uh, he spoke at length about the Lawford Street shooting and other killings he was involved in, some the police actually had no idea about. Talib said that in the Lawford Street shooting, uh, Eddie Darwish, Ramsey and two others were to be the shooters. He said that the instructions given by Eddie were that each gunman was to start firing at the top of his allotted section of the front wall and lower their aim diagonally in order to continue hitting their targets as they fell. In excess of 100 rounds, it entered the home and uh, just murdered these two people. In Talib's statement, he writes, quote, I remember Eddie holding his hands out as if he was holding a gun. He was moving his arms like in the shape of an S. So this information that Talib provided was used against Adnan Darwish. It was the only evidence used to convict Ramsey Awad, the person I'd been speaking to in prison. None of the weapons fired at the crime scenes were ever recovered. And in his own signed statement, Talib openly admits to his methods of disposing firearms with a grinder at his uncle's home. Right, so... Ramsey Awad is in prison now, never to be released, based on on the testimony of one person. That's right. He is in prison for his role in the Lawford Street shootings that left two people dead. But what's significant is that they were all tried together. Even though Ramsey and Nassim Elzayat were clearly much younger and either inspired or felt threatened by the older 
Adnan Edidawish in New South Wales at that time, a joint trial could be heard if the series of offences were of the same or similar character. This meant that uh, for Ramsey, he faced a jury alongside Eddie Darwish for several shootings and a murder that he had no part in, which was the, the murder of Ali Abdul Razak. So they stood before the jury as a gang. And as his defence barrister, Peter Hamill, told the court, he said, I quote, it would have been virtually impossible as a matter of common sense for the jury to disregard the evidence led against Eddie Darwish in considering the case of Ramsey Awad. After four murders, dozens of attempted murders, shootings and drive-bys, Eddie Darwich, one of the key players in the family feud, was jailed for life for murder. Further arrests... And so, Ramsey received the same sentence as Eddie Darwish, imprisoned at the age of 22 and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, a sentence that the European Court of Human Rights has declared a violation of the Human Rights Convention. Abdul Darwish appeared outside a court when his brother was jailed for life for committing two murders. Four million dollars worth of witnesses to sentence him. Four million. You call yourselves your bunch of... It's worth it. Get off me. The New South Wales police have been playing down... And what did Talib get in exchange for his cooperation with police? As well as financial compensation for seized assets, Khalid Talib was indemnified of four murders and 17 attempted murders. He was also indemnified for his role in the Lawford Street killings. Right, so essentially Talib can't be prosecuted for any of those murders or, or attempted murders. That's right. So he walks freely among us today. What else did he receive as part of that deal? So Talib entered into a deed of agreement with the New South Wales Crime Commission in relation to ongoing witness security and accommodation. He was financially rewarded in a sum that ranges somewhere between $750,000 to $2 million in return for seized assets that may have been the proceeds of crime. The Crime Commission paid the rent for the two houses in which he and his family lived. The deed also made provisions for the payment of economy airfares from Lebanon to Australia for his relatives and for a motorboat to be made available to him because there was nothing to do where he was living and he said he enjoyed fishing. Hmm. In subsequent meetings on Australian soil, Talib also refused to speak to detectives unless a Red Rooster family pack was provided. What have law enforcement authorities said about this deal that they made with Talib, about why they made it? Well, in an indemnity application that we've acquired, Detective Russell Oxford writes that despite the fact that Talib could be described as a ruthless, violent criminal, Realistically, you have to rely on criminals to catch criminals. Open the door or force the door open. Open the door, do you understand? The specialist Middle Eastern crime squads were starting to make a difference. 
the confidential application for indemnity sent by the police's state crime command to the Attorney General, states, in the history of organised crime, you could look upon Khalid Talib as being akin to Sami the Bulgravano, a trusted confidant and standover man who brought down mafia godfather John Gotti. So, in Ramsey's trial for the 2003 Lawford Street killings, the Crown Prosecutor explained that the reality is that to crack crimes of this type, and in this case, the evidence must come from a man on the inside. That is Khalid Talib. We'll be back in a moment. For Sloan Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloan Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Mahmood, we're talking about the evidence that put Ramsey Awad in prison, never to be released. There are questions about some of that evidence Can you tell me a bit about the pressure on police to get a conviction and how they built their case? Well, in a task force gain briefing, then Commander Bob Ingster writes, there was pressure on criminal witnesses. This is not a new and sometimes the only viable option to solve crimes. And in my own interview with Stuart Wilkins, who was the former commander in task force game, He said the same thing, that it is what it is. At times, you get to a point where you've got what you've got. So it is what it is. You either roll the dice and go, or you you don't do anything. So at times, you know, sometimes it's as good as it gets. Um, I've had murder trials where I... And... Tell me about life for for Ramsey now, who's in prison with no prospect of release. In prison, Ramsey recalls his youth. He entered prison illiterate, but now writes long letters. He embraced Islam and became a Hafiz, meaning he memorised the entire Quran. I also spoke to Ahmed Akul, who was Ramsey's cellmate and released from prison a week prior to my interview with him. So, Ahmed, can you tell us the first time you saw Ramsey? The first time I saw Ramsey was in um, Goulburn. would have been 2006. Uh, he formed a really, really strong relationship with Ramsey in prison. And he's telling me to like, be patient when you get out. You know, take your time. It doesn't matter if you've got nothing left, just be patient. 
he was essentially mentored by Ramsey throughout his sentence. I remember believing God do this and try to get a job bit by bit. You know what I mean? Don't don't go back to that life because you're just going to end up back in here. While incarcerated, uh, he rekindled a teenage romance with Hanadi, a girl he had met briefly in his youth. From behind bars, the pair got married, but it's it's pretty haunting every time I speak to him. Um, I can't begin to imagine what it might feel like, you know, being married to someone who's been locked away forever. You know they're there, but they're never really there. What do you reckon he'd do if he got out? He'd thank God first, yeah. Probably spend a lot of time with his mum and dad, family. He'd have, go have a good feed, I reckon. Some good meat. So, yeah, life goes on for us. It just doesn't feel like justice, does it? It feels like we did to them what they were doing to each other. I honestly don't understand that, how he's in anyway. But three life sentences at that age, you know what I mean? It's, it's not right. Or that we've taken revenge. I'm just not fully convinced of our motives. It's like us Muslim boys, we get hard done by a lot of the things that happen to us, you know what I mean? I'm not sitting here complaining, but at the end of the day, we get harsher sentences than anyone else does for the crimes. They're going, I don't know why that is, but it is what it is at the end of the day. Does Ramsey talk to you at all about the police that caught him and the case against him? He talks about redemption and about how we as Muslims view this dunya or material world as a stepping stone to the afterlife. He is very remorseful. He prays for those he has harmed every day. What else can he do but be patient? He's do, he's accepted his fate, basically. And you can tell, you can see a light in his face. Tragically, his circumstances are such that he will have to be imprisoned until he's dead. Life becomes little more than a waiting game. So he just puts it aside and does his daily exercise, does his daily things, huh? and goes to bed and wakes up the same day. What can you do? He's accepted what's happened to him. And he's trying his best, you know, every appeal, every avenue. And whoever can help him, you know, he asks. It's interesting to listen to this case and to think about the conversation that's happening now around racialized policing. It seems extraordinary that there was a crime squad set up to target a, a single ethnic group. Looking at Ramsey's case now, wh- what are your main thoughts? I think as long as the New South Wales Crime Commission is able to financially induce witness testimony with almost no judicial scrutiny, our justice system is flawed. When the state's most secretive and powerful police agency is cutting secretive deals with major organised crime figures and letting them walk free, no billing them, for signed testimony that can't be verified with hard evidence and then paying them for it, it doesn't seem right. 
you can dish out as many life sentences as you like, but you can't call it justice. Some of the criminals they gave safe passage to simply relocated their major crime syndicate and started running drugs and car rebirthing in that state. But of course, this isn't about catching criminals, is it? It's about penal populism and political point scoring. Mahmood, thank you so much for today. Anytime. That was Mahmood Fazal, who wrote about this story for The Monthly. Some tape in this episode has been drawn from the podcast No Gangsters in Paradise from Audible Australia. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Also in the news, there were 177 new cases of coronavirus recorded in Melbourne yesterday, taking the number of active Victorian cases to 1,612. Meanwhile, in New South Wales, health authorities have confirmed 14 new infections, including four new cases linked to a growing cluster at the Crossroads Hotel in Sydney's southwest. And in Queensland, human trials have begun for a potential coronavirus vaccine, with preliminary results expected by September. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.